front of you, that'd be super. We have a uh, fantastic morning ahead of us because that's a cracking passage of the Bible. I'm going to ask God to help us see its beauty and help it to be a foundation for us. And I'm going to pray that and then uh, we will jump into all the goodness that's waiting for us there. Heavenly Father, thank you for Paul's letter to the Romans. I thank you particularly for this section and pray this morning you might challenge us where we're more like the world, change us to be more like your son. And we thank you, Father, that you're here to do it by the person of your Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so we're continuing our series in Romans and we're up to Romans chapter five. I say this for everything, but it's one of my favorite chapters of the Bible. I really do love it, and I want to show you why this morning. In order to do that, I want to start by reflecting a little bit on a question. Uh, what's the name of our church, first of all? Great, you can answer that one. Fantastic. Here's, here's the thing for us to reflect on as we start. For you, does it really feel like you're living a new life? Does it really feel like there's something new for you? And what I mean by that is... Are we really any different from the world around us? Is there a genuine difference for us from the other people maybe that you're praying for, your friends, your neighbours, your, your, uh, your family members? Is there really a significant difference? And when I say that, I mean, is there a difference when it comes to trials? So when hardship comes into our life, are we distinctly different from those around us? What, what about our self-worth? Do, do we look to the same things that the world looks to when we're wondering what we're worth? Are we valuable? What about our diagnosis of the problems of the world? I mean, I mean particularly after a week like we've just had in federal parliament, we, we might say, well, what's, what's wrong with this world? Is our analysis of that different from the people who are around us? Or do we just say all the same things? And, and because of that, would we offer different solutions to the problems of the world, or would we sound exactly the same as those who are around us? In other words, this place called New Life, does it actually produce, are we living a new life for Jesus, one that's distinctly different from the world around us? I want to show you today that there is foundation in here for living a different life. And I want to persuade you that that will be a better life to live because this one chapter has things to say on all of it, on all those things. So let's, let's begin. We'll start with anxiety. Anxiety. Now, there's normal anxiety. There's, uh, you know, got, a, got something coming up in your life that's raising your stress level. That's fine. That's natural. Anxiety in the next sense, though, is the sense where you never step down from it, where it's a constant companion, where you actually can't get the space from this gnawing feeling of uncertainty. That anxiety affects one in three women at some point in their lifetime and one in five men. That means today, almost statistically 100%, some of you here will be suffering that sort of anxiety. Many of us will be suffering the more normal sense. There are other things just happening in our lives at the present that are making us unsettled. Does God's word have anything to say to us about that? Have a look with me at Romans 5, verses 1 to 2. Paul's just finished last week, remember, uh, pointing out how wonderful faith is. And he says this in verse 1. Therefore, since we've been justified through faith, 
We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand, and we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Paul says there's something available for the Christian that's special. And that special thing is kind of summed up in this picture. I I used to live in Wollongong, and one of my favourite places to go was down to the harbour there. I don't know if you know the little harbour that's that's there in Wollongong. One of the beauties of it is it doesn't matter what's happening out to sea, in this little bit of water here, there's peace. There's peace in this little part of the water. And it's made possible because of these two things that are up there. There's two walls that keep the storm at bay. And so this beautiful little enclosed area is at peace. And I want to suggest to you today that this image will be really helpful for us thinking about the peace of God. God has welcomed us into the safe harbour of being right with him. Peace with God looks like safety from the storm. Peace with God is made possible by justification, by that work that Jesus did on the cross. This safe harbour of God's love is available for all of us. And it's not an abstract concept. It should be an experienced reality. Not all the time. I understand we get anxious. But we should know the deep and abiding peace that is here, made available by the safe harbour of God's love. That is what's on offer for the Christian. The problem is our lives get a little bit out of hand sometimes, don't they? And when that happens, I actually quite like it when there's a storm. It doesn't happen very often. But when there's a storm, I used to go down to uh, the harbour and one of the cool things there is that the waves absolutely smash the walls of, uh, of the, the harbour there. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. They're actually generally people who are out there standing underneath the waves as they crash all over the... Because... It's actually safe to be there because of the, the, the wall, right? Our problem with getting unsettled, stormy weather in our lives is that all too often, you and I will end up watching the waves rather than trusting in the wall. Yeah? You and I will get overwhelmed by the storm that's out there and even forget the ground we're standing on, on the wall, while the waves roll in, we'll get obsessed. And so on a, on a bad day, you'll find us, even as Christians, watching the waves and not the wall. Today, I want to remind you, there is a new peace that you can have if you will place your confidence firmly back in the faith and the, the forgiveness that we find through Jesus. A new peace. So that's Anxiety. But there's something else mentioned in this passage. In the next section, we've got a mention of suffering. Now, if I was to take the survey here, how many people suffer? It's it's 100% of everyone, and it's not split by men and women. It's just all of us. And right now, some of us are at different states of suffering, aren't we? Some of us, it's physical. Some of it's relational. Some of it's with our parenting, some of it's with our parents. We know suffering, and the question isn't, do we suffer? But what's distinctive about Christian suffering? And that's what we're going to see in the passage here. Before we do that, I want to show you, I was trying to work out, how do we grab this idea? 
And I was thinking about suffering, and I was thinking, what's suffering like? Suffering's like rub- it's rubbish. I hate it when we- I don't like it. Rubbish. So, so when you've chopped up the veggies or you've done your fruit, right, uh, somebody has to scoop that up and put that in the little container. I don't know if you have one at, at uh, your house, but there's a little container in our house where all the veggie scraps and fruit scraps go, right? Who wants to do that job? Yuck, right? And then there's a little bin of yuck sitting on you. Anyway, maybe you're not wired up like me, but I don't, I don't like this at all, right? But that's not the worst part. The worst part is when, regrettably, the bin thing on the, becomes full and then somebody has to do the terrible job of take that out to the compost Anyone? No, no one knows this. Okay, right. So that job is horrible, right? Who wants to do that job? Because it's night, because it's been filling up all day, because no one wants... So now you have to go out in the cold and... T- anyway, it's a, it's a terrible job. So we put it in the compost. What's the compost like? It's a disaster. All, all this yucky stuff in... I, I don't like that either. But the wonderful thing about the compost is, over time, it does this miraculous thing. All those little little flies and bugs and snails, whatever it is is in there, they do something amazing, don't they? Over time, your rubbish gets turned into soil. And this beautiful soil can then be taken to a garden and all of a sudden this rubbish has been transformed into something able to produce life. There's this redemption in this process. And I want to suggest to you, that's what we're hearing in the passage here. Have a look with me at Romans, 3, uh, Romans 5, 3 to 5. These words are extraordinary, so have a listen with me. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. That sounds insane, doesn't it? We glory in our sufferings, Paul says, because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance, character. And character, hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. So this passage says something extraordinary about suffering. It says this. It says that your sufferings matter. What sort of sufferings? We could say, well, Paul rejoices in his sufferings. He glories in his sufferings. Is that because he had a free run? His suffering was when uh, he, he didn't get under par on putt-putt golf or something. You know, is it, is that, that wasn't it. He's a man who knew floggings, who knew shipwreck, who knew loneliness, who knew betrayal. Paul writes, we glory in our sufferings. Whatever your trials are, they fall. Your pain, your tribulation, your stress, your pressure, your loss, they fall into this category. But Paul doesn't leave us there. He says something more. He says our suffering produces something. Our sufferings produce perseverance. What's this perseverance? I've defined it this way. Perseverance is enduring hardship with Godward patience and joy. Godward's a word I made up, okay? The idea is that it's not just grinning and bearing it. It's not just a stiff upper lip. It's God-directed patience in the midst of hardship. Perseverance. Suffering produces perseverance in the Christian, and that is not an end in itself. Perseverance produces this beautiful soil, this rich soil called character. And you go, what's character? Is character the guy with the bushy beard that everyone likes to shake the hand of? No. That's not character. Character is spiritual maturity and depth 
one at cost. You can't cheat this. You can't come to Christian character easily. It's one through hardship. It's one through perseverance. Christian character comes from suffering and perseverance. Suffering, perseverance, perseverance, character, and that even on itself is not the end. There is fruitfulness to come. That produces hope, Christian hope. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted in God's economy. Fruitful waiting, knowing that God is the gardener in the midst of your suffering. That's what we're heading towards. Hope that there will be redemption amidst the rubbish. Now that's something you can't buy at Woolies. You won't get that anywhere else. This is saying as Christians we suffer differently because there's a trajectory, a journey that God is offering you and I that is by faith. If we'll embrace it. But here's the thing. Compost on a bad day looks like smelly rubbish, flies and snails, doesn't it? Right. So if you stop midway through this process and you go, God, what are you doing here for me? This is all flies and rubbish and... He just goes, yeah, persevere. I'm bringing forth in you something of inestimable value, something beautiful, something for the kingdom is happening in you if you'll let me. I have a new purpose for you in the midst of hardship. That's not to say it won't be terrible. It's not to say that the bin won't be filled with snails and rubbish. It'll stink and it'll be redeemed. What about uncertainty? What about when we think about the future? How many people worry about the future? Don't put your hands up, I can see them all. We worry about the future, we worry about what's ahead for us. And there's an answer to that too. You see, for us, one of the questions we have in the midst of our suffering is, does God really care? Does God really care? How do I know God loves me when my life looks like the compost bin? That's what we want to know, isn't it? God, prove it. It's all very well to sit here in church and say, you're doing something wonderful with my suffering. I don't believe it. Prove it. So God says, okay. Have a look with me at verses 6 to 8. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. Though for a good person, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. See, it says there at just the right time, in human history, God did something to prove his love. In human history, at just the right time. He did it when the Romans were in power. That's Pax Romana. They they created a peaceful world in a pretty brutal way. But what that meant was the good news could go out. God sent his son when there was still a second temple, before it was pulled down. That helped people understand what he was doing. In actual time, in actual space, God did something at just the right time. And he did it when we would think that we were beyond being loved. The description of us here is that we were still powerless, that we were ungodly, that we were still sinners. We were the worst We were the most unlovely we could look 
according to the Bible. And what it says is, God didn't leave you there. It says, God demonstrated his love by sending his son to die for you when you didn't deserve it, when I didn't deserve it. How do I know God loves me? The bloody cross bought me at great price, bought you at great price. Nothing is wasted. God loves you. How do you know? I I don't know, God, if you look to the cross. It happened in real history. And you'll find there your answer. God loves you. But on a bad day, on a bad day, the cross looks like an unnecessary disaster, doesn't it? But I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that there's a new picture here of the love of God. He loved us when we were unlovable. That future I was talking about, the one that we worry about, that all of us worry about, there's an answer for that too. Have a look at verses 9 to 11. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to Uh, to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. There's there's something going on here. I want you to see. There's two horizons. There's something for today and something for the future. The first thing that we need to know is that the storm has been avoided. Jesus died on the cross, paid the price for our sin. You are saved today. Fantastic. There's a day coming in the future where Jesus will come back. And on that day, he will judge all the world. And you might be thinking to yourself, what happens on that day? We've avoided the storm, but what happens on that day? Well, what we're told here is that actually we will be safe on the day to come. The future is forecast. Have a look with me here at the verse. Verse 9, since we have been justified by his blood, that's right, you're safe today, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? Shall we be saved? What it's saying is the future is certain as well. Unlike our weather forecasters, who just can't get it right, unlike our political commentators who haven't got a clue, you can know the future about the judgment of God. Present justification will be followed by future salvation. You can know for sure you'll be okay. It's pretty good. And if I take you back to our little harbour, God just doesn't put us in our harbour. Your little boat is safe in the harbour. Here's what else he does. He puts a pilot aboard for you. Do you know what a pilot is? Funnily enough, there's a pilot on a ship, right? I don't know if you knew this. The pilot on the ship is someone who knows the home waters and is able to take the foreign ship safely into the harbour. That's what a pilot does. So here's the thing. God drops a pilot onto your little ship. Have a look with me uh, back up in verse 5. It says, Hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit whom he has given to us. See, God loves you, he saves you, and then he equips you to come safely home. He drops a pilot onto the ship. We're not only reconciled, but we're filled with the Holy Spirit. On a bad day, the future looks too far away. But for the Christian, I want to encourage you, there's a new plan. You can know what the end will be. You can read the end of the book today. That's pretty good. Now, Paul does this next bit, and uh, Tim didn't read it out because I didn't ask him to, which is good. Thanks, Tim. 
In the rest of this chapter, Paul goes on to say, why is there so much sin and death in the world? Now, Tom just prayed beautifully for our broken world. Thanks, Tom. Why is there so much sin and death in the world? I don't know if you've thought about this. Our world out here, the people that we know and love who aren't Christians, don't have an answer for this. They don't have an answer for two reasons. What I'm going to call individualism, that's the way our society works, and the second one. I'll tell you about individualism. Number one, individualism means I'm the only one able to impact my destiny and my happiness justifies any end. In other words, I'm in charge of my life and I'll do whatever I want and I'll justify it to myself. If that's true, and and how do I know that, that we're all about ourselves? This is the posture of modern humanity. I don't care about you. I'm taking a picture of me. I'm the only one. And if I'm taking a picture of me, then there is no sin because I won't tell me what I'm doing is bad. Yes? Secondly, here's the second reason. The second reason is the thing I've called incrementalism. Bear with me, guys. It's hard yards, but we're going to get there, okay? Bear with me. Bear with me. Incrementalism. Human beings are just the latest animal on the continuum from monkeys. Okay, why does this matter? Why does this matter? Because if we're just monkey-ish kind of things, and you might have this experience in your home at various times, if we're just monkey-ish things, then there is no sin. We're just various functions of monkey behavior, aren't we? There is no first sinner. When would God say the first sin occurred? I don't know. So there's no sin because I'm in charge of my life, and there's no first sinner because I'm just a kind of uh, coat-wearing monkey. So this is why our world can't have an answer to this problem. It can't tell us. But the Bible does, and it's it's worth it. Okay, Bear with me. Just hang in there. Buckle up. It's going to be good. We're going to read verses 15 to 19. Come with me. He's talking about the difference between Adam and Jesus. Okay, Have a look with me at verse 15. But the gift is not like the trespass. That's a sin. For if many died... By the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to many? Nor can the gift be compared with the result of one man's sin. Judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. But the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For, as through the disobedience of one man the many were made sinners... So through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. Now, your heads have exploded. Bear with me. Okay, here's the thing. We're really individualistic, so we don't think this way. So I want to I show you that we do understand when other people do it, we could be involved. Have a think with me about this. I'm going to take you to the moon. Isn't that good? Take you to the moon. So Neil Armstrong is standing on the moon. How many people have stood on the moon before him? You, you know the answer to this question. The answer is? Good. That's correct. That's still correct, okay? None. Okay, here's the thing. When he stood on the moon, he said, that's one small step for a man. What did he say after that? Okay, 
you mumbled roughly right, okay? One small step for a man. He was just one man stepping onto the moon, but he said one small step for a man, one giant leap for mankind. So here's the thing. The many in the one. Are you with me? So this one man represented all humanity when he stepped on the moon. We have walked on the moon. Do you, do you understand that? There's a we in it, even though you and I probably will never see the dusty surface of the moon. Are you with me? All right. Now, I want to take you to Adam. Adam was the first man. And here's what it says. It says, there's one giant sin for a man. Adam doubted God. One giant sin for a man. One giant sin for mankind. We were all included in Adam's sin. As the head of all humanity, as the pioneer stepping into He sinned and we were included in it because we're human beings just like him. So through his disobedience came condemnation to everyone. So the one impacted the many so that we are all together in death. That's what happened. In Adam, all sinned. Now, God didn't leave us there. He did something amazing. God sent his son, Jesus. Everyone goes, Great, good answer, fantastic. What did Jesus do? Well, Jesus did one giant act of obedience. Yeah? Giant life of obedience for one man, which offers one giant justification for mankind. So Jesus lived a life of obedience that brought justification. The one and the many means we can be together in life because of Jesus. So, death was our default because Adam was our figurehead. It's the default for all humanity. But life can be our future if we say Jesus is our head. Do you see? And if you choose to read that passage in 1 Corinthians, you'll see how Adam was the first one and Jesus was the second and better head of human beings. Jesus is the answer. Here's what it says a little bit earlier. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. So then the question really is a simple one. Who are you into? Are you into Adam? Death. Are you into Jesus? Life. Who are you into? There is a new place for you and I to reside. So let's see if we can pull all this together. I drew a picture. I like drawing pictures. I don't generally show you my pictures, but here's a picture. I drew a picture. I want to try and bring all that you've learnt this morning into one image. Okay, bear with me. Let's see if it'll work. You can tell me on the Karen Connect cards afterwards. Here we go. Okay, so outside is a storm. Our world is filled with suffering and death and anxiety. It's a storm out there. You guys know this. Inside, there is peace possible. It's possible for you and I to know peace. Outside is the realm of Adam. Inside is the realm of Jesus. Welcome to being in Jesus. If you're in Jesus, your little boat has come into the safe harbour of God's love. How did it happen? Well, the gospel lighthouse sent out the news and said, there's a harbour over here, get over here, right? Come over here. This is where safety can be found. Somebody announced the good news to you and you followed the light and here you are. 
How is this made a safe harbor? It's made a safe harbor by justification. Because of what Jesus has done, you can be safe enclosed in the harbor. Fantastic. What are the walls of the harbor? There are two walls on the harbor. The first is intellectual. It's intellectual. You should understand. You can find peace because you now understand God is the gardener in the midst of my suffering. I won't love my suffering. I won't rejoice for the thing that is suffered, but I can look to God and find peace in the midst of it because I know he's working something good. It's intellectual. It's also intellectual in the cross. We can understand what God did. In Jesus, God was paying the price for our sin. So on one hand, our security is intellectual. The second is it should be experiential. You should know that God has poured his love into your heart. Do you know the love of God? It shouldn't just be that it feels nice to come to church. I want to ask you, do you know the love of God in your heart? Because peace is found there. God has poured his love into our heart, it says, by the Holy Spirit. Our harbour is secured intellectually and experientially. We find assurance in this place, in Jesus Because we found reconciliation with God. He's made us one. And he didn't just put our little boat in the harbour, but he also dropped the pilot into the boat. And he says, you're safe here. And on the day when I still the storm out there, you and I will go on great adventures all over the place. Isn't that amazing? That's the Christian hope. That is not available elsewhere. That story isn't for you elsewhere. It's only here in God's word. And so I want you to think with me this morning. When it comes to your personal peace, are you obsessed with the waves or are you trusting in the wall? When it comes to engaging with suffering, do you feel God forsaken? God, how could you let this happen? Or by faith, will you choose to say, God, what are you growing here? Your assurance for the day, is it based on my story or his story? the history that is the cross? Is your assurance for tomorrow based on fear? I just, I don't know what's going to happen. I'm up all night in, or do we say, I know what the forecast is. I've read the end of the story. I'm going to be okay. When we look at the human condition, are we people who are in Adam or are we in Christ? See, I want to ask you this morning, does it really feel like a new life? Are there things distinctively different for you because you stand on the word of God? I want you to know there is peace for me and there's peace for you. If we will acknowledge that we have been wrong in Adam and we will look to Christ, he is the one who secures our forgiveness. And if that's the case, then you can know peace with God because you understand the gardener. You trust in the history and you know the forecast of what's ahead. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, you are good. There's nothing else like this available in the world. Father, we rejoice in your word. We pray that you'd sow it deep in our hearts. Put our ship to harbour. Father, help us to know the peace of being surrounded by your walls and the presence 
of the pilot of your Holy Spirit pouring your love into our hearts. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.